Hello, and welcome to episode four of Cop and Daughter. I'm Cop. And I'm Daughter. And this week, we are going to be talking about John Edward Robinson. Uh, We're kind of continuing with our just initial theme of um, true crime that has occurred in our area. And John Robinson, uh, definitely from the Kansas City area, Mm -hmm. uh, was even arrested in the town where we both now live. Uh, not too far from either of our houses, um, but yeah. And in, in this week, we've we've decided to uh, really just kind of record our conversation about as we studied John Robinson and learned about him. What stands out to us? Um, maybe what we find interesting, and not try to chronic, you know, do a mm-hmm. chronicle uh, breakdown of of his crimes and what he did. Um, and the other thing I, I, I do still want to do is just acknowledge uh, the victims. And so uh, he does have eight known uh, victims uh, from 1984 to 2000. And the first is, uh, well, in, in, in the first two, I suppose to some degree um, can't completely be uh, tied to him. Maybe even the right. first three uh the first three, uh, their remains were never found. And then the last four uh, we'll, or five, we'll go into their detail a little bit. But uh, 1984 was Paula Godfrey. 1985 was Elisa Stacy. 1987 was a Catherine Clampett. 1993 was a Beverly Bonner. 1994 was Sheila Faith and her daughter, Debbie Faith. And then 1999 is an Isabella Lewicki. And then 2000 was a Suzette Troughton. So, um, you know, we don't um, we don't take this topic lightly. Don't mean to be glib about killing or right. uh, these people, uh, but it is interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's actually my first question for you: is like, why do you find this interesting? Why is this something that we're sitting in front of a microphone <laughs> and, and we're talking about? Uh, I think for me, I've just always kind of been interested in the way that like the mind works Mm -hmm. so like what is it that makes these people tick Mm -hmm. um or that makes them do the things that they do because for me it's just hard to even wrap my head around that someone could commit crimes that are so heinous um so I think it's just kind of getting to the not the root, because I don't know that there's ever really a way to know why people do these things. Um, right. But, yeah. So, yeah. So, it, it, it is. It's just kind of a, a crazy concept that somebody could torture another human being, take another person's life. And then just even with so many of these, um, I think everybody we've talked to at this point, is there's, there's not really a sense of remorse. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a <laughs> justifiable reason for it. Right. It's all very selfish. Um, I still run around in circles where I get the opportunity to talk about true crime Mm -hmm. uh, with other officers and things that they've investigated. And actually on on a random note, John Robinson came up this week. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was, so there was a a Metro squad that investigated him. They got, um, investigators cause, cause he had, so Kansas, um, 
Kansas City. Mm-hmm. There's both a Kansas City, Missouri, and there's a Kansas City, Kansas. And then both those cities, like any big city, have suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Robinson committed his crime, his crimes in multiple jurisdiction in the Kansas City area. Mm-hmm. And so the Metro Squad came together. And so, yeah, somebody that I work with now was actually like, yeah. And, and I didn't mention that we were doing this. Or yeah. it, it was, it just totally came up. So that's, that's part of it for me is I was never huge on the investigative side. Mm-hmm. Um, never was assigned as a detective or um, an investigator. Uh, but I, you know, frequently was the first one on a scene where I was a lead officer and then it got turned mm-hmm. over to detectives and participated in investigations um, but it's still just interesting to hear kind of behind the scenes right. of what, um, what, what happened. And, right. and even in, and even in this, the John Robinson, um, I, I didn't realize this till we started doing it, but I know some people, mm-hmm. um, and even been to like training, mm-hmm. uh, where some of them talk about it. And so, uh, they share details that may not be readily available to the mm-hmm. public, which I find is interesting. And even in the case of John Robinson, they were so worried about him um, committing other crimes that they maybe didn't put the detail into some of the earlier people. Mm -hmm. Now, they were able to make connections to him through documentation and things like that, um, but didn't go back and necessarily interview people or things like that. They they knew that they were going to – they had a case against him. They were going to try him. They were going to get him convicted. But in that, didn't necessarily go back and make a lot of effort to um, bring closure to even the family sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's the nature of police work and homicide in particular is yeah. you only have so much time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Is that, um, you hear a lot and like you keep up with shows or documentaries or whatever, the like first 48 hours, is mm-hmm. that a true like standard that detectives or just like police force go off of, of like if someone's missing for more than 48 hours, the chances of finding them alive. Yeah. So, so the, so the first 48 in terms of, yeah, if they're going to die, it, 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 if they're truly a missing person, then Mm -hmm. they want to find them sooner than later. Mm -hmm. And so time is of the essence. Um, you know, the other thing too is, is, um, murders are messy. Mm Mm-hmm. And even the most well-planned person, there's going to be mistakes or mm-hmm. things that they have to go back and cover up. And so in those first 48 hours, they generally don't have that time to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we talked last time about Bordella, about him going to work that next day yeah. to keep up appearances. Well, that would be one of those instances where there's a whole eight hours where he's not doing mm-hmm. something to cover up his crime. Yeah. And so... Yeah, so I, I definitely think that is is true. Um, it might get sensationalized a little bit with right. <laughs> TV yeah. and, and that sort of thing, um, but yeah, um, the the more time that goes by, the more difficult um, a case goes. Um, and there was a I worked in a jurisdiction south of here where they're still trying to solve a murder of a of a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a cold case that they reopened was it a year ago, maybe two years ago? And they're going back and re-interviewing. And I think they have like four suspects in that. Yeah. And like two of them are dead. 
No. So they can't even go back and interview those two. Yeah. You know, so things like that with time just, yeah. just occur. So, all right. Uh, John Robinson, what kind of is, as we kick this off, what, is there anything that stands out to you? Uh, maybe with, uh, what you want to begin with or something that you wanted to talk about with him? I think one of the biggest things about him was just his um, ability to manipulate the people around him. Mm-hmm. Like even before he started his killing spree, uh, he was a con man. Like he had been arrested for fraud and um, tricked the mayor of a town into giving him the man of the year award um, cause he like forged letters to the mayor and higher up along the way. Um, so just that someone can be so like those outward appearances of like, it seems like everything's fine. He's kind of described as, um, like he has that grandfather feel to him, um, coached his kids sports, um, but then had this whole different life that he was living, uh, and no one like second guessed who he was or so just that he was able to manipulate the people around him into thinking he was one way when. Yeah. I think he frequently, I think he went to jail or prison twice Mm -hmm. and both times basically got out for good behavior for lack of a better term. Like Mm -hmm. his sentences were shortened. So even within the system, he was somebody that would get put in jail for doing something and then he would get out of it. Yeah. So yeah, so this was this was this is a guy that's he's a lifelong con man. Um, frequently stole money uh, from the businesses where he worked. Uh, would even create false businesses um, and write checks for those businesses. Have credit card for those businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then so to me, there's kind of this underlying piece of for him. Uh, I, I think he he took pleasure in being popular being well-liked, right. which, mm-hmm. um, we saw that in Berdella. Mm-hmm. Um, John Wayne Gacy was another one that, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a pillar of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's as- aspect of it. And then the second piece with Robinson for me was money always seems to be the motivating uh, yeah, factor. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, um, but even in that, um, it, it just, you know, occurred to me like he would steal the money and then he was like, um, paying for apartments where he was mm-hmm. keeping these women. Yeah. So that's where like that would come from was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, not a good, good person. And in 1984, we have our first victim and again, he had, well, they call them shell companies mm-hmm. and, and basically they're, they're not really companies, but he probably had paperwork for them, money that was going in and out. And, um, Paula Godfrey, our first missing person, you know, she received a typewritten letter from her, or her family received a typewritten letter from her mm-hmm. that had her signature on it. Right. And so this was kind of one of his, we, we talked about MO before we fired up the microphones. Yeah. And MO stands for modus operandi, and, and it's how they function, how they do their things. And so, I don't know, do you want to go into a little bit about the letters at all, what he would do? and Yeah, so each victim that he had, um, he would have them sign basically like blank pages and then would t- take these pages and put them into the typewriter and would type 
letters to their families basically saying like, I've decided to start a new life or I'm traveling the world. Um, and because it had their signatures, the families would just kind of take it as is. I think as time went on, more families started to notice like, this isn't normal yeah. for, for her. Um, but yeah, that was his big, before he would do anything, he'd make them sign these papers and, um, would then use them as letters to kind of create that facade that everything was okay. Yeah. And, and so like, and even if the family, you know, like, like Godfrey, her, her parents went to the police Mm -hmm. and basically it's said she was okay. She didn't want to see her family. And so there's an element in 1984 of the police going, and I mean, it's still somewhat true today of just saying, we've got this letter, you know, like, is this her signature? The family's going to go, yeah, that's right. her signature. Right. And they're going to be like, she's an adult. If she doesn't want to have any contact with you, there's not, you know. Right. There's nothing we can do about it. We can, we can um, move on from this. We're not going mm-hmm. to uh, investigate it. And so, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Godfrey was never found. Um, and then in 1985, we have Lisa Stacy and kind of the same deal of um, he invited her to Kansas City, was going to give her a job. Um, but there's there's a bit of a twist uh, with Lisa Stacy. Yes. And what is that? She had a four month old daughter, Tiffany Stacy, um, that she had with her, and he. Uh, put them up in a hotel, the Roadway Inn Hotel, um, and kind of created this facade that he was um, working with this program that would take vulnerable women and provide them with housing or jobs to help get them back on their feet. And so he put uh, Lisa and her daughter Tiffany up in the hotel um, and then eventually went on to kill Lisa and gave the baby to his brother and sister-in-law. And yeah. they adopted the baby, having no idea what the actual story behind. Yeah. He had told them that the mom had committed suicide. Um, and then even conned them further by saying, like, he asked them for legal fees and gave them... um I believe it was a genuine certificate of adoption, but the signatures on the adoption certificate were forged. So it wasn't an actual adoption, but his brother and sister-in-law had no idea that there was anything suspicious about their adoption. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about what you will with all all the stuff that, you know, I mean, he, he did some horrific things, but to think about this, he kills a woman, takes her baby from her Mm -hmm. and then adopts that child, a quote unquote, a fake adoption to his brother and his sister-in-law. So in essence, she grew up with him. He was her uncle. He was her uncle. And then at age 15, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So she was 1985. So in year 2000, um, she basically learns that her uncle is the yeah killed her biological mother yeah yeah her uncle is her mom's killer so i i can't imagine what that mm-hmm. did to her what it did i mean yeah. just the i mean and again you, never would you think no that something like that is your story yeah uh well and she had mentioned 
you know, like growing up, she always, he being around him always kind of gave her this like pit in the stomach feeling, but she could never place Mm -hmm. what it was. And so I think to grow up having that feeling that something's off and to have it be something so extreme, that would just be so devastating. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel for that poor woman. Mm-hmm. Our third victim is Catherine Clampett. And again, kind of the same MO. She comes to work for him. He promises her extravagant trial wardrobes. She disappears in June of that year. Uh, her missing case person, I, th- I think her case is technically still open kind of a deal, but there's that. If it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. It's a duck. She was, the, you know, mm-hmm. she knew, uh, is associated with Robinson, made that move, goes missing. And so that's, you know, that's why she is included in one of his, as one of his um, victims, right. even though we may not know where she is or have mm-hmm. any details. And so, uh, again, we, we mentioned uh, Bradella last week, and that was somebody that he took pictures, he took notes. Yeah. Uh, even after he was arrested and incarcerated, he talked about the murders, and John Robinson has never done that. He mm-hmm. has never shared any of the details of why he did what he did. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we don't know anything about yeah. these women. On well, Catherine Clampett was right before he went to prison for fraud charges. Um, and then it was when he was in prison that he met his next victim. Yeah. And so we talked about him being kind of a, well, definitely being a con person and winning mm-hmm. people over and he gets a job in the library mm-hmm. and she worked as the librarian. And she was married to the prison doctor at the time as well. Yeah. And so, uh, Berdella or Berdella, um, Robinson gets released and do they get married? Um, no, but she did leave the prison and divorce her husband for him, but and I don't got think alimony they ever, checks. Yes. Yeah. So, um, she left, divorced her husband and then he, um, killed Bonner. She disappeared and he began collecting her monthly alimony checks that were, like close to a thousand dollars a check. Um, so he was getting that money and then continued searching for other women. All right. So you talk about searching for other women. Where did he start searching for his next victims? Internet chat rooms, internet chat rooms. So Robinson is considered the first internet killer. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what he did yeah, on so, the internet? Um, he specifically got involved in the chat rooms that focused on the BDSM subculture. Um, went by the screen name of Slave Master, I believe. Yeah. Um, and he was basically using the online chat rooms to find women who um, preferred to take on that submissive role. And, um, you know, even through some of those interactions would take it as far to say, like, I can take care of you. I can, um, help you get on your feet while you're basically my slave. Mm-hmm. And, and who did, 
she bring with her? Who did Debbie? Or no. That, so who did, so that she brought Debbie with her. So yes. Sheila brought Debbie and who is Debbie? Uh, Debbie is Sheila's daughter who was 15 and had cerebral palsy. Um, and hers required her to have a wheelchair to get around. Yeah. And he ended up killing both Sheila and her daughter, Debbie. So sad. And I believe then began pulling Sheila's pension checks. So again, the financial piece was motivating for him of he was able to make her disappear and then benefit from her. Yeah. And so during this time, like the authorities are kind of on to him. The FBI is looking into him. I mean, they kind of know that this guy is up to no good, but they can't make any like concrete connections um, to him. And I think there's a sense of, there are probably women that he met. um, Well, there are, and I can't even think of the exact woman, but like uh, he pulled a gun on the one. Didn't, what didn't he like have it? So he bought it. He bought like an apartment building over on Truist Avenue in Kansas city, Mm -hmm. had the keys. So like there's like, you know, beyond this investigation, there are probably women that we may not even know about that right. one he could have killed. Right. And are, are out there still missing. Uh, there are ones that could have had a quote unquote normal mm-hmm. <laughs> interaction with him. Yeah. Either being um, a hookup in a hotel mm-hmm. or being placed in an apartment or something like that. And they went on with their lives. Like yeah. it, we, um, there, there are periods of his life that are unaccounted for. Right. And again, he wasn't most forthcoming in, in sharing uh, about those. And so right. who knows um, what is out there? Uh, so he, it, as, as, as we see with, with serial killers, there's often a progression. Mm-hmm. Um, they get better at what they're doing um, and maybe not even better. They, they kind of have their technique. They have what, what mm-hmm. works for them. And so um, he meets a 21-year-old Polish immigrant online and convinces her to come to uh, Kansas City again. Mm-hmm. And She was living in Indiana, I believe. And he kind of takes it to the next level with her in terms of what's documented. Right. And do you want to go into that at all? Or do you remember kind of what? Yeah, I, it was, um, a one, I want to say 115, um, like items of like sex slave. Yeah. Like a contract, contract that she signed. That she signed. Yeah. Um, and so she was basically living with him as a sex slave, which then later led to her being his next victim. Yeah, and he went even so far as to like, uh, they never got married, but they got a marriage certificate. Yeah, he gave her an engagement ring, paid for the certificate. Uh, she had told her family that she was married, but never told the family his name. Yeah. And then he, he really kind of ramps up the letters and stuff with her too, mm-hmm. where there's this perception of they're traveling. Right. And... um 
He's just taking her around the world and yeah. And so the letters yeah. kind of indicate that they're in these extravagant places and doing um, different things. So right, which it is noted um, at one. I want to say it was his last victim where this was caught, um, but he was writing these letters saying they were traveling, but they were all still postmarked in Kansas, Kansas City. Yeah. And so that was, um, I believe it, it was um, Suzette Troughton whose mother picked up on this and was like, something's not adding up here. And yeah. was pushing that with the police of like, my daughter is um, missing. I'm getting these letters from her. They're supposed to be from her, but. Well, and didn't, was she the one that like, the mom was like, they're well-written, like there's yes. no errors in yeah, it, like which my I daughter doesn't. That was interesting. <laughs> she said there were no errors, um, which isn't normal for my daughter. And then um, Suzette Troughton, one of the things that the mom pointed out was she had two dogs, and Pika and Harry, and she was like, my daughter doesn't go anywhere without these dogs. And then in one of the letters, the dog's name was spelled incorrectly. And she was like, she wouldn't have spelled her dog's name yeah. incorrectly. Yeah, so so Suzette Troughton is is his last victim, and ultimately, I think kind of where his undoing comes about because her mom, like you said, knows her daughter mm-hmm. is like this is not like her, mm-hmm. um, and so I, it, this is like this is one of those times where um, the police did the right thing, right? And so she contacts. Um, it's I can't I don't know if he was an investigator, detective, or an officer at this time, but his name's Dave Brown, and he's with the Lenexa Police Department, and he really pays attention to what um, the mom is telling him, mm-hmm. and even I think makes a connection uh, that Robinson, uh, John Robinson to um, Troughton, and kind of gets to know this guy, and is like, yeah. okay, like. I'm finding out from other jurisdiction Mm -hmm. that he's associated with missing people Mm -hmm. and he's got this history. And so, um, he truly, um, doesn't, which like, you know, it's always never want to armchair quarterback the way somebody else did something, but you're kind of like, how is this guy getting away with this? And, Mm -hmm. and it really just took it falling in the right person's lap of just saying, I'm not going to just dismiss this and I'm I'm going to look into it and things start kind of all the pieces are coming together and the the people that are involved in this metro squad start sharing their information mm-hmm. and so they're really like okay this is a guy that um we need to be paying attention to and ultimately it's the two dogs that yeah are kind of what raises the red flag or really takes the um, investigation in in the direction. Did you want to talk about the dogs and what happened with the dogs? Yeah. The um, police discovered that two dogs had been found abandoned in a trailer park where Robinson was living at the time. And they were found abandoned on the same day that Suzette had disappeared. And so the detectives went to visit the family who had adopted one of the dogs. And when um, he went to the home, he called the dog by the name Suzette had given him, Pika. 
And as soon as he said the dog's name, the dog's ears perked up and he ran to the police officer. Mm -hmm. And so that for them was kind of a confirmation of like, we have the dogs. So now we need to find Mm -hmm. Suzette. And I think they knew at that point that she would have been dead. Um, And then knowing like that, giving them the uh, confirmation that Robinson was involved um, led to Brown um, having Carolyn call Robinson and record the conversation between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it basically is just her giving a call to um, Robinson and she had his information because Suzette had taken a job offer from him to care for his elderly father who had actually been dead for several years yeah. already. Um, but she called him and she says, I haven't heard anything from her in a couple of weeks and I'm really nervous. And he's trying to downplay her feelings of, Oh, you don't, you don't need to be nervous. Like everything's fine. Um, tells her that she ended up actually taking a job from a different guy. So he was like, I don't know where she is. Cause she's off traveling um, on a boat somewhere. Like, that's probably why she hasn't called you, because she's not going to have service. Um, And uh, Suzette's mom kind of starts pushing of like, oh, well, I think I need to call the police, because it's been too long. It's not normal for me to not hear her. And again, Robinson's just like, she's she's a big girl. Like, she can do whatever she wants. Um, And again, she kind of pushes that, like, I think I should could should notify someone that she's disappeared and he was like no just wait it out she'll send a card or something um and so they were able to use that phone call um to kind of further that investigation with robinson yeah and so that again i just want to emphasize it's like those are the breaks in the case you know when you think about catching a serial killer you you mm-hmm. know solving a crime it is doing the mundane stuff, the stuff that leads nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you, you, you know, I'm a big believer in that if you're a good investigator, uh, luck plays into it, but I also, you, you make your own luck. And this is one of those examples of, you know, he didn't just get lucky. Uh, He did the legwork that needed to be done. And so I just think that is, you know, so many of these documentaries and true crime stuff, you kind of hear about how the cops fudged it and they Uh missed it. And I know I'm a bit biased and, uh, want to defend that, but it, it, sometimes it just takes that person that's willing to make the extra steps and, and do the other work. And like, you couldn't make that, like if you're a true crime, if you're somebody that's going to set out to write a novel, Mm -hmm. you know, two dogs abandoned in a trailer park end up being that thing that you just kind of go, okay, we've got Mm -hmm. our guy. This is him. Now we need to start putting the pieces into place. And it, it, it happened. Uh, and that's, that, that's what the situation is with this one. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you know, just cool that. I think those puzzle pieces of like the investigative part, you touched on this earlier, but I think that's one of the intriguing things for me is just seeing how it all Mm -hmm. like, plays out like what was missed why didn't they catch this but they caught this and um yeah yeah and so then there's kind of the second piece of they were staying at the same there was so there's a hotel where uh suzette had been staying at Mm -hmm. 
And then there's another woman named uh, Janine, and she goes to the front desk uh, sobbing, and she finds out at the registration that – so this is a potential next victim mm-hmm. after Suzette. And she had moved to Kansas City to work for the guy, and he had told her his name was James Turner. And she goes to the front desk, and John Ro- finds out that they're checked in under John Robinson. Uh-huh. And so they call the police, and literally – so it's Detective David Brown. He, like, shows up at this hotel, like, within minutes. Like, he is there. Yeah. And gets her story and (laughs) basically finds out that he had, that John Robinson had been beating this victim. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what I wanted. And so they put all the information that they've collected to this at this point, they put together a search warrant Mm. and they go out to his trailer park. Mm -hmm. Um, and they find a whole bunch of interesting things at his trailer park. Do you know? Do you remember what some of those things were? Do you have that? So they they took the are they called cadaver dogs? Is that right? But, well, so this is before they even get to that point. Oh, they're okay. at his place, and they find blank sheets of stationery signed by Lisa Stacy. Yes. So this is this is his victim number two. Mm-hmm. This is the mom of the daughter that he adopts out. Mm-hmm. So you know that's huge. They find a um, the receipt, and this is crazy that he even holds on to this. They yeah. find the receipt that Stacy had checked out of the hotel on January tenth of the year that she disappeared. Right, and so well, and I think too they found in his trash the like shredded documents of the storage. Um, what are those storage units yeah. that they? that he had owned. Yeah. And that was kind of that next step. And so it's interesting because, so I took a, I actually took a class and uh, it was on serial killers Uh and they, the guys, some of the guys that did the investigation on this came in and talked about it and they literally went through all these shredded pieces of paper Mm -hmm. and they just made piles of everything that was pink, everything that was white, everything that was yellow. And then from there, like they would kind of distinguish the font mm-hmm. or um, like a business receipt at the top is, is mm-hmm. generally printed on differently than everything below. And they literally put these, um, the shreddings together and then got like clear contact paper and stuck them to the contact paper. And that's what they went, like that was one of the things that they had as evidence in the courtroom uh-huh. were these shredded documents. Like, <laughs> I think that would be so cool to yeah. be the person that like, it'd be so boring, I'm sure. But like to spend all that time putting that together and then being like, we've got this yeah. guy because of these documents. Yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 you know, like I don't, I don't know how many documents they had, but I'm guessing it's probably in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, you know, a handful of them give them evidence needed. that they're looking yeah. for. And <laughs> so, so they still put all those, they put all those things together. Um, then they find, so they go to a storage facility in Olathe mm-hmm. and, uh, they they had found a bunch of stuff that linked Robinson to Suzette Troughton, uh, and then Isabel Lewicki. Um, they had like social security cards. They had birth certificates. Uh, again, blank signed pieces of stationery, which I think is crazy to like. Like he probably thought he was being so smart by shredding these pieces of paper, mm-hmm. 
And then, but because he just dumped them in his garbage, Mm -hmm. they were able to still use that as like, as evidence. Mm -hmm. And so, um, now we get to kind of the, the grisly part of all of this and what he was doing uh, with his victims. And what had he done with them? He was storing them in the 55-gallon drum. Yeah. The, yeah. So two of them are found, his first uh, early victims, they were found in Raymore, Missouri, mm-hmm. to the point where the drums are like decomposing. Yeah. Um, in, I think they got kiddie pools and they slid kiddie pools underneath them because they were worried about them breaking Ugh. open when they moved. No, yeah. that didn't happen, but I think they did start leaking. Yeah. When he had tried to cover the like scent and, um, decaying with kitty litter in those storage units. Yeah. Which you would think wouldn't do much, but Yeah. And then um, it is, he had a farm in uh, Lacine, Kansas, and they found two more barrels there. And this time they were plastic barrels and they mm-hmm. were just outside on his property. And they found more of his victims um, decomposing mm-hmm. in there. Um, how did he kill his victims? <laughs> did you catch that? I didn't. So he he killed all of his victims were bludgeoned to the head with oh a with hammer. the hammer yes yeah. yeah yep and um one of the things that I've learned from the people that were part of the investigation was like they literally collected dozens of hammers mm-hmm. and they could never tie any of those hammers to the actual yeah victims yeah there was no DNA there was no so they don't know if they have the murder weapon or not so um. When we talked about Richard Grissom, we talked mm-hmm. about him being tried in Kansas mm-hmm. with no bodies. Mm-hmm. And again, kind of kind of a similar deal here. Uh, driver's license in the pos- yep. possession of your suspect. Um, I mean, even more damning evidence in terms of these written letters or unwritten letters that have the signatures on them. Right. Uh, they have no bodies. They have no murder weapon. And they go to trial. Um over this mm-hmm. and he ends up getting convicted. Right. Yeah. Kind of a crazy concept that, um, we have a couple of different serial killers from the area and it just kind of goes back to the, you know, good investigative work mm-hmm. and putting, putting all the pieces together and making a case before the judge and, um, John Robinson is on death row here in Kansas yep. and there's never been anybody killed or killed. Yeah. Been killed. I think that's fair to say nobody that's has been killed on death row or due to the death penalty in Kansas since 1965. Interesting. But we talked about um, Grissom and mm-hmm. death penalty not being in place mm-hmm. and um they did leverage that in this case in terms of trying to get some information from him. And yeah. so he's serving life sentences and I think he's, I think we decided he was 78, 79 yep. years old. And if you even go to the Kansas department of corrections and look up his picture, he just looks like this old grandpa. Yeah. 
not, you know, um, as, as we've had dialogue about different serial killers, like some, you're just like, Oh my gosh, they're so creepy. They're so, they feel, you feel that like evil presence Mm -hmm. just from their pictures. And he's like the exact opposite. Yep. Like I probably wouldn't think twice if I saw him out on the, on the street. Yep. So, um, Paula Godfrey and Catherine Clampett have never been tied to John Robinson. Mm -hmm. They probably, I hate to say this, but they won't waste the money. They Mm -hmm. won't waste the resources because they know he's in jail. They feel confident that he's um, tied to him. I don't know. Is that, do you feel like any injustice is being done when you have two missing bodies that? I think. For me, it's more just like thinking about the families mm-hmm. and there not being any closure. Like, you you would probably at that point know what happened and that they're not coming home. Right. But. But no closure. Yeah. Not knowing what happened specifically and. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I'd say there's an injustice because, again, that circumstantial evidence kind of makes it seem like this is the way to go. Like this is what happened, but, um, yeah, I think my, I would just be more concerned about like the families and what that would cause them to go through. Yeah. So Robinson didn't even plead guilty or not guilty. He, he remained silent in the courtroom. His, Mm -hmm. his lawyer spoke on his behalf. That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, again, I guess it gives him a sense of control when mm-hmm. he knows he's going to prison. And and even in that, I mean, he was convicted in like 2001, maybe. I think so. Yeah. It was, it was early 2000s. So 20 some years have gone by since his conviction. He's been sentenced to death. He continues to appeal it. And more than likely he is going to die in prison. Now I wouldn't want to spend 20 years in prison, No, but I, I mean, in a sense, he got, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say he got away with anything, but. Yeah, there's not. Yeah. <laughs> He's living out the rest of his life. Yeah. Like, it's not an ideal circumstance, but um, is. So if someone's on death row, does mm-hmm. that mean they have the death penalty or is that just life sentence? You'll die in prison. No, if you're if you're considered on death row, you are supposed to be executed. And that was the word I was looking for earlier yeah. was executed. So how long, I mean, he, at this point he's been in prison for 20 years. At what point do they, um, like how do they decide how long someone is in prison before they're executed? Like, is there a reason he hasn't been executed in 20 years? Well, one of the ones is, is he, he can appeal. Oh. So that's, that's part of, part of the delay mm-hmm. is, is being able to appeal um, I think politics comes yeah. into play with a lot of that. Um, you know, I don't think this is the case with Robinson, but we are finding out or we're at least the media is reporting that innocent people have been convicted and placed mm-hmm. on death row. Um, you know, I think, um, I don't want to use the term normal, but most people don't want to kill another human being. Right. And whether you're pulling the trigger on a gun or you're flipping a switch or, 
you know, and, and even in that there's, there's pieces in place where, um, you know, like on, a, on, uh, a lethal injection, there's multiple mm-hmm. people that push a button kind of thing. And right. so you don't know who's the one that actually did it and that sort of right. thing. So, um, so yeah, I, I think society is not comfortable with mm-hmm. killing people. Yeah. And so I think that's part of the reason as well. And then you get somewhere like Kansas where um, it's been, you know, over 50 years since somebody's been mm-hmm. executed. Then, and we can, this might be something worth talking about down the road, but uh, Oklahoma, in fact, this might be, I, I'll say we should talk about this because I don't know, be a little teaser for down the road of just, Oklahoma basically has like somebody slated for execution every year for like, I want, I don't know if it's 10 years or 20 years where they've kind of like made the decision of we're going to move forward with this. And so uh, I think too, who your governor is Mm -hmm. uh, plays, uh, plays a part in that because ultimately they're the ones that can uh, stop the -hmm. execution from happening. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of factors. Uh, the simple answer is, is I think politics is the biggest reason. Yeah. And then I think secondly, people aren't comfortable with killing Yeah, when it really comes down to it. So, yeah. and for him to appeal his sentence basically means he's trying to like reverse it, like a get, get a lesser sentence. Is that right? Or is I, there... I would, I would say for him, that's probably, I mean, I don't know the inner workings of his appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, a lot of times there, so there's, there's due process and there's laws that police have to follow in terms of, mm-hmm. um, and we could, we could even discuss this at some point, but, um, talk about the fruit of the, of the poison tree mm-hmm. where evidence is found under wrongdoing mm-hmm. or, um, not maybe intentional, but they, they, they end up with evidence that they shouldn't have. And so, um, I'm guessing it's purely speculation that he has lawyers that are willing to to comb through everything and find different wow. uh, things that were potentially yeah. wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And again, even in that, you know, things that that maybe were a standard in the '80s or the '90s with getting somebody convicted. As time goes by and laws change and things maybe loosen a little bit what stood up then may not stand up now. Right. Yeah. And so, okay. All right. Well, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. This has been episode four of cop and daughter. And we really appreciate you taking the time to spend this time with us. So yes. until next time, stay safe. Thank you.